Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning. Um, I just want to add my welcome to the, those that have already been given. Um, it's always so good to gather together and worship and be encouraged together. Um, as Chris said, my name is Jo, and I'm a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mostly, I'm a wife and a mum. I'm a daughter and a sister and a friend. Sometimes I'm a taxi driver and a very specific Lego piece finder. Sometimes I take a moment to watch the ants on our porch go about their work. But more often than not, I'm rushing way more than I would like. I'm a reader and a learner when I've had sufficient sleep to be able to do both those things. And I lean towards being an introvert, and I squeeze into that top end of the millennial generation. I'm a follower or disciple or apprentice of Jesus, whatever language you like to use. Um, As Chris said, I'm part of our staff and our leadership team here, and it's such a privilege um, to be with you today and to open God's word with you. Um, As Chris mentioned, we are in our summer series of looking at the Psalms, and just recently, actually, a friend of ours challenged John and I to read through the Psalms with her over a three-month period. So each night, uh, John and I would take turns at reading the Psalm aloud uh, to each other, and it was just such a good way to end our days with our final thoughts being directed by the psalmist. Uh, Timothy Keller says in his introductions to his devotions on the Psalms that the Psalms are far more than just an instrument for theological instruction, but that they are a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. He goes on to say that the Psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises, to depend on God through petition and expressions of acceptance, to seek, God and, um, to seek comfort in God through lament and complaint, to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain new wisdom and perspective from God through meditation, remembrance, and reflection. The Psalms also help us to see God, God not as we wish or hope him to be, but as he actually reveals himself. God not as we wish or hope him to be, but as he actually reveals himself. I love that idea that Timothy Keller talks about, about the Psalms being a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. Um, I don't know about you, but I need all the help I can get. So, with this in mind, today we are going to be looking at Psalm 62. The title of the psalm uh, reads, To the Choir Master According to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Uh, Jeduthun was one of the chief musicians appointed by David to lead public worship. Uh, You can find him mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, 38 to 41, and chapter 25, verses 1 to 6. It was possible that Jeduthun was the director of music to whom David gave his compositions. Um, Some scholars suggest that the content of the psalm lends itself to to have perhaps been composed by David in the time of Absalom's rebellion. If you remember, Absalom was David's son who tried to steal the kingdom from him. So with that short framing in mind um, of our context, we are going to read the psalm together. Um, If you have your Bible with you, uh, why don't you keep it open to Psalm 62 because I'll be referring to particular verses often and it will be helpful for you, I think. Um, We don't do this often, but today 
I'm going to ask you uh, to read aloud with me um, Psalm 62. We're reading from the English Standard Version and the words will be up here. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from this high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. I live a very noisy life. Um, as Chris mentioned, I'm a mum to four little boys, ranging from our eldest, who is almost eight, to our youngest, who is one and a half. And um, it's been holidays, obviously. Our kids, our two oldest, have just gone back to school this week. Um, and I love holidays, but for me, holidays means relentless noise. Uh, there's no school, no kindy to give me a little breather from that noise. The noise is constant, and it follows me wherever I go. And um, with our baby, actually, we put him to sleep with more noise to block out the other noise. Um, so if you walk past his room when he's taking a nap or he's gone to bed for the night, you'll hear this constant It's not like a nice, pleasant noise, but it's the noise of this white noise machine that we use to block out all the other noises. Um, but in holidays in particular, the noise comes with me wherever I go. And um, you could ask some of the staff here in the office. I've foolishly um, attempted to come into the office to do a few things over the last few weeks. Um, but when I come in, it's like I have this warning sound, or some might call it a siren, that comes with me wherever I go. And you can hear me approaching before I even arrive. And it's this posse of like, little people that are all around me. Um, and I've got one in my arms usually, and like, one like, clinging to my legs, and just so many backs. So many bags. Little people need a lot of stuff for some reason. Um, and there's usually some kind of fighting or uh, maybe crying. Um, and so we move as this noisy unit. We are not a stealth unit by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and whatever is going on, it's usually it's noisy. Um, if they're not hungry or not tired, there might be some kind of laughing or joking. Sometimes the noise comes from me. Sometimes I'm yelly mum. Sometimes my patience is paper thin. Uh, sometimes I'm hungry. Sometimes I'm tired. And so sometimes I'm the noise. 
And so wherever I go, you can hear me coming before I arrive, and I think, um, I'm sure actually, that so many of the staff here have had this moment where they've been in their offices and they've sort of sighed to themselves. Here comes Joe. <laughs> before I've even walked into the room, I mean, I guess it gives them time to hide from me. I live a very noisy life. And then sometimes when the noise has gone to bed, sometimes I have a few moments where the external noise is quiet, only to be greeted by the internal noise. As one author puts it, the mental chatter that just never shuts up. The replaying of conversations that I wish I'd done better. The prone to anxious what-ifs that chip away at my joy and peace. The catastrophizing the obsessing over hypothetical possibilities that lead me down a rabbit warren of worry. Imagining what I could do if I had more, more money, more time, more influence, more power, more stuff. The feeding of that more monster that is never satisfied and that restricts me from being grateful and content in the good gifts of today. And so often, rather than be confronted by the mental chatter, I put back on some external noise. I find some of my own white noise to drown out that internal noise. I switch on a series on TV, while at the same time, of course, scrolling on my phone aimlessly, reading pointless news stories about Harry and Meghan, or looking at the perfect lives of strangers or friends on Instagram who clearly get eight hours of sleep every night and whose children are clearly far better behaved than my own. I live a very noisy life. And I think that you and I are actually not that different. We are both immersed in the same cultural realities. Our external and internal noises might manifest in slightly different ways. You might not have a posse of little people that follow you around like a constant surround sound system. Your mental chatter might sound different to mine. And you might have different go-to white noise preferences. But we live in a noisy culture. We live noisy lives. I live a noisy life. And so it is into this space of life that Psalm 62 has been and continues to speak to me. The first line of the psalm literally says, only toward God my soul is silence. Only toward God my soul is silence. Still, calm, quiet, listening. In this season of life, maybe more than any other, I long for the quiet place. Not just from the external fracas that accompanies a season full of little people for whom I'm truly grateful, but also the place where my soul is quiet, where its chatter is stilled, where I listen for the Holy Spirit instead of just to myself, where I switch off the white noises that I use as distractions and anaesthetizers. And so this psalm, has been my prayer for the past few months. So today I just want to briefly spend some time unpacking the major theme that runs through the psalm, and then coming back again to a few key verses that look at this idea of silence and how this could maybe impact our walk with Jesus. One of the major themes that runs through the psalm is that of trust. We are going to look at it in three sections. The first is the idea of trust, and adversity, the second idea of trust and security, and the third idea of trust and reality. 
So 62 verses 1 to 4. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. Um, if you're new to the Psalms, you will find that term Selah um, used often throughout them. Um, scholars aren't 100% sure what that term means, but general consensus would lean towards um, that it is a signal for, musical inter- for a musical interlude or a change of accompaniment. Often different versions will translate it in different ways, so your Bible might say something like, pause in his presence, um, in place of that word Selah. But David starts the um, psalm in a place of trust, a place of waiting, a place of affirming where his trust sits with God, who is his salvation, his rock, his fortress. This is all the more startling when you consider the pressure he was under, not from like a known enemy, like a known king in a distant kingdom um, who you might have expected to come against him in a power play. But if scholars are right, his own beloved son, And if not his son, then trusted friends who were plotting against him. And this pressure was not just a one-off. We get a sense in his questioning that a length of time is involved. How long? How long will all of you attack a man? There's a feeling in the metaphors he uses of a leaning wall and a tottering fence that David is at his final point of weakness. To use another metaphor that he is hanging on by a thread. He is just about to fall over and collapse. One final push and he will be done. The reality of this situation is that David's enemies were probably planning to assassinate him. Hopefully it's safe to assume um, that nobody here has has ever had anyone plotting to take your life. But if you have been in any position of leadership or responsibility or let's be honest, just alive for longer than two minutes, you've probably faced some kind of criticism or slander, perhaps even from those who you thought were your closest allies or friends. This kind of betrayal stings, and it's easy to get bitter and frustrated, and bitter and cynical, and bitter and defensive, and bitter and bitter and bitter. Bitter at the person or the people who seem to be conspiring against you, or bitter even at God for allowing something like this to happen. But this isn't the pattern of David in the psalm. Instead of being bitter at God, we see him turning back again to God. In verses 5 to 8, we see this theme of trust and security emerging where he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Uh, Verses five and six are almost a repetition, word for word, of verses one and two. But the tone is modified slightly with a few nuances. In verse 1, David simply declares that his soul waits in silence. But in verse 5, David urges himself to be silent. Perhaps following the agitation of recalling these enemies that are conspiring against him, David needed to exhort himself to come back to that place of trust, 
knowing that God is his security. Uh, Nick talked a couple of weeks ago about the difference between talking to ourselves and listening to ourselves. Often it's easy to listen to the doubts and the fears and the worries we may have about life. But instead, on occasion, we need to preach to ourselves, as the psalmists often did, and as David does here, oh my soul, wait in silence. He then goes on to declare the truths he knows God to be, his hope, his rock, his salvation, and his fortress. Back in verse 2, David asserts that he would not be greatly shaken, which seems to maybe imply partial confidence. But here now in verse 5, we see an unqualified assurance that he will not be shaken at all. It's in this place that rather than going back to dwell on false friends as in verse 3 and 4, he turns his attention to God, again realizing that his glory, or that word can also be interpreted honor, rests in God. Although people might conspire against him, it is God who is his refuge. From this thought, he urges us to join him in that place of trust, of knowing uh, that God alone is our security and our salvation. Just as God has been a refuge for David in a time of great adversity, God is also a refuge for us. Finally, the psalm gives a compelling picture of why we should put our trust and confidence in God rather than man. In verses 9 to 12, the psalm reads, Those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Um, verses 9 to 12 paint a picture of the reality of life, that it is fleeting, and that it is foolishness to put our trust in man or the schemes of man. The only place worth putting our trust and our confidence is in God. Uh, the words lower state and higher state are used as a merism, um, which is just a rhetoric tool that uses two contrasting ideas to refer to the whole thing. Uh, so to this thing and that thing and everything in between, which in this case is lower state, higher state, and the whole of humanity. Uh, the word breath here, haval in the Hebrew, is used often um, through Ecclesiastes, and it is usually translated as meaningless. The idea of something that is transitory, or unsatisfactory. The word delusion, kazav in the Hebrew, means a lie and the idea that it deludes by false hope. It seems to promise much but delivers very little. Derek Kidner in his commentary on this verse says, the point then is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man, as that we have nothing to hope from him. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates this in the messages as, man is such as smoke, woman is such a mirage. Put them together, they're nothing. Two times nothing is nothing. Verse 10 then expands on the right and wrong objects to put our faith and trust in. Just as humanity and its systems will fail us, so too will wealth, whether it is rightly or wrongly won. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 expands on, or perhaps even alludes to this verse, um, when Timothy says, To all the rich of this world, I command you not to be wrapped in thoughts of pride over your prosperity or rely on your wealth, for your riches are unreliable and are nothing compared to the living God. 
Trust instead in the one who has lavished upon us all good things, fulfilling our every need. In verses 11 and 12, uh, David comes back to the one thing that we can put our trust in and concludes this psalm with a declaration of God's power and loving kindness and righteousness. God is fair and just in contrast to the duplicity of humanity. For such a God, David can confidently wait in silence. And there's so much in this psalm that is is worthy of being given much deeper consideration than the cursory overview I've just given it. But it seems to me, as I have been sitting with the psalm over a number of months, that the starting point for David of silence is something that I would love us to consider more deeply as we leap right into this new year. We have a God uh, worth trusting, as David so aptly points out in the psalm. And yet so often we are so busy and so distracted and so caught up in the whirlwind of our own thoughts and activity that we fail to take the time to pause silently and quietly for this one who is worthy of all our trust. This God who came in the very form of man, who understands what it's like to be human more than we understand it ourselves, who knows the pressures of life, who has been the victim of false friends that have turned against him, who, like David, had people plotting to take his life, who knows what it's like to be slandered and yet who gave his life for you, who took on the weight of our sin and our shame and our brokenness, and and he said, I'll carry that. I'll take that on myself. I'll declare you righteous. I love you. Who says to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For you will find rest for your souls. For God alone, all my soul, wait in silence. Preach to yourself, wait in silence. When was the last time you were truly silent before God? Where you ceased your endless activity and striving? Where you sat still long enough for your internal chatter to quiet? Where you listened long enough for his Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you? I am talking to myself, but I suspect that I'm talking to many of us. In some of my worst moments, I have accused God of being silent. But lately, I have been convicted that maybe it's not that God is silent, it's just that I am not. I'm constantly moving, busy, distracted, hurried. We live in a noisy culture. We live noisy lives. C.S. Lewis, in his classic masterpiece, The Screwtape Letters, uses satire to talk about how the devil will do anything to keep our lives noisy. In one section, uh, the senior demon, who is named Screwtape, is writing to his nephew Wormwood, and he says, and this is flipped, so just remember that as I'm reading it to you, music and silence, how I detest them both, 
No square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in that direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit, we are not yet loud enough, or anything like it. Research is in progress. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down. Um, Lewis wrote his, um, the Screwtape Letters in 1942, and I wonder how much noisier our culture has become since then. Um, as I said earlier, I'm a millennial, but I'm at the older end of that generation, and so I'm a digital native, as in I know what it's like to have the world at my fingertips. Um, and yet, I also remember what it is to be bored. I remember a time in my life where I didn't have a phone to play games on or Google to answer whatever question I might have about anything uh, in an instant, to be waiting for a friend and to have to sit awkwardly by myself or maybe even worse, talk to a stranger, to not have my phone as a companion. I don't know if we can fully understand it because we are in it, but I think we are at one of those pivotal points in history where the world has changed quite dramatically through the invention of a particular technology. In 1440, the printing press was invented, and subsequently, uh, this set the stage for uh, what we call the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, um, both of which together transformed Europe first and then the rest of the world. Fast forward to 2007, where Apple released the first iPhone, Facebook opened up to anyone with an email address, Twitter became its own platform, uh, the App Store opened, and it was year one of the cloud, and Intel switched from silicon to metal chips, which doesn't mean a lot to me, but apparently is important. 2007 is the official um, date of the start of the digital age. In not too distant memory, we managed to survive without the internet or Wi-Fi access. I know, unbelievable. Uh, whereas in 2016, it was declared by the Human Rights Council of the, UN, of the UN that access to the internet is a basic human right. And the invention of the smartphone put this access in most of our pockets. And since then, we have unwittingly become part of an experiment. No one really knows what this di digital technology and what this unparalleled access to information and entertainment is doing to our brains. Some would say our smartphones are making us dumber, or at least affecting our ability to pay attention. Uh, in the year 2000, uh, before the official start of the digital revolution, a study um, conducted in Canada showed that humans had an average attention span of 12 seconds. Uh, which doesn't actually seem like a lot and is actually quite a daunting fact to know when you're trying to put together a sermon. Uh, but since then, it has dropped to eight seconds. To put that in perspective, a goldfish has uh, the attention span of nine seconds. <laughs> Our phones and personal devices and all the apps and social media platforms on them are intentionally designed to steal our attention. Mark Sayers calls it digital capitalism. A company can only get your money if they can get your attention. 
and we are being sold things and ideas and philosophies all the time, and most of that time without us even realizing it. Um, Andrew Sullivan, in his article in the New York Times entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being, which is well worth a read, says, we absorb this content, as writing or video or photography is now called, no longer primarily by buying a magazine or paper, by bookmarking our favorite website, or by actively choosing to read or watch. We are instead guided to these info nuggets by myriad little interruptions on social media, all cascading at us with individually tailored relevance and accuracy. Do not flatter yourself in thinking that you have much control over which temptations you click on. Silicon Valley's technologists and their ever-perfecting algorithms have discovered the form of bait that will have you jumping like a witness, witless minnow. No information technology ever had this depth of, of knowledge of its consumers or greater capacity to tweak their synapses to keep them engaged. And the engagement never ends. Not long ago, surfing the web, however addictive, was a stationary activity, at your desk at work or at home on your laptop. You disappeared down a rabbit hole of links and resurfaced minutes or hours later to re-encounter the world. But the smartphone then went and made that rabbit hole portable, inviting us to get lost in it anywhere, at any time, whatever else might be, we might be doing. We live in a very noisy culture. It's hard to be silent. Um, I'm not against um, technology or entertainment at all. Goodness, I could not have even put this sermon together without the internet. And my children have watched more than their fair share of episodes of Paw Patrol. But I just wonder if we have ever bothered to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for me to consume technology as a follower of Jesus? And in asking that question, I don't think there's any easy answers. I think we probably think of the obvious ones, like I probably shouldn't watch this, or I probably shouldn't watch that. Uh, but I just wonder if there is a bigger question that we need to ask ourselves around that whole idea of as a follower of Jesus, as that's my primary relationship, how does this impact how I consume and interact with technology? How much time should I spend on watching a series on Netflix? How much time should I spend on scrolling my phone? What does it do to my thought life when I'm constantly reading other people's opinions and outrage on social media? What kind of person am I becoming when I'm constantly longing for my life to be more like that influencer on Instagram? Ronald Rollheiser says, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Ouch. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Uh, John Mark Comer, in his book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, again, highly recommend to you, and much of this content has been influenced by him, says, the noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God drowning out the one input we need the most. When was the last time you were silent? When was the last time you put your phone away for an extended period of time? 
where you switched off all your devices and you were just present with the people around you. Or we stopped and sat still for quietly, and quietly for long enough that your mental chatter stopped. Where you allowed some room, maybe, for God to speak to you. I am preaching to myself. Let me tell you uh, a story about Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, uh, we find the disciples in a period of intense activity. So busy were they that they hadn't had time to eat. And Jesus says to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a solitary place. Uh, the Greek word that is used uh, for solitary there is a word called eremos, and it means desert or wilderness or quiet place. And as you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus often withdrew to the eremos, to the quiet place, to the secluded place. And Jesus clearly wasn't a lazy guy. This was a period of intense ministry activity. People wanted his time and his attention. They wanted, him, they wanted to hear him, and they wanted him to heal them. He was busy, and yet we find him not only telling the disciples to withdraw and take some time in the quiet place, but Luke tells us Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew, often. I wonder if, if this is something that Jesus did and if it's something that he instructed his disciples to do. I wonder if it's something that we need to look at, maybe implementing in our lives. I think sometimes we can get a bit hung up and say of these kind of things, isn't that a little bit legalistic? Isn't that a little bit religious? And I sometimes wonder if we think our Christian life should just happen to us that it shouldn't take any work or discipline or, God forbid, its structure. But there is a difference between training and trying. Trying implies a striving to attain. It's a burden. Training, in contrast, implies a dedicated and methodical and, dare I say it, disciplined approach to reaching whatever goal you set yourself. The older I get, the more convinced I am that it is my habits and my training that shapes me. Yes, God has moved in my life in miraculous and wonderful ways in a moment. Yes, he is present with me always, but am I present to him? Unless I have disciplines and practices in place in my life, I know how easily and how quickly I drift to whatever has my attention in the moment. And we live in a very noisy culture. Not that silence is easy. Silence is uncomfortable. The quietest place on earth is an anechoic chamber. And among other things, astronauts use it to help adapt themselves to the silence of space. It's so quiet that you can hear your heart beating and your blood rushing through your veins. When you move, you can hear your skin creaking. The longest uh, time most people can last in this room is around 45 minutes. Silence can be hugely confronting. It's in the silence that we hear things about ourselves that we don't hear in ordinary life. Um, if the musicians could just come as we circle back 
again to Psalm 62. David, from a place of silence, was able to know with confidence who God is. He was able to live unaffected by the chaos that was around him. And he was able to exhort others to do the same. I don't know about you, but I do know about me. And I know that in my better moments, I want to walk with God with depth, with real confidence and trust and knowing that comes from being and spending time with God. I know that this is hard in my life. There is much on the daily that clamors for my attention, much that I can't just put aside, responsibilities that are mine to hold. But I also know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, and that the devil will do anything to distract us, to keep us from the quiet place. So, I encourage you, along with myself, that the next time you have a moment, even a microsecond, don't reach for your phone to fill up that moment like the addicts most of us are. Turn your gaze upward. Don't fill the silences that you do have with more noise, but use them intentionally to seek the face of Jesus. Maybe you're further along this, in this journey than I am. Maybe you have more space. Maybe you're more disciplined, and time spent daily in the quiet is a given for you. I encourage you to delve a little deeper. Maybe take an hour or two, maybe even a day, to sit silently with God, away from the distractions of everyday life. I just wonder what God might say to us if we gave him the space. I wonder what edges he might begin to chisel away. I wonder what trajectory he will set you or reset you on. What he might shape and who you are becoming. I know it's easy for me to live my faith in my head. I love learning new things. I love reading. It's natural for me to want to know things about God and know things about how to live my faith as a follower of him. But if I'm not careful, so much of my faith can stay in my head at an intellectual level. But I long to know God in my heart and in my gut. I long to be like David, who could say with such confidence, God is my rock, my salvation, my fortress, and my refuge. I long that I would know and that you would know this God, Yahweh, who is revealed in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, that he is your refuge and your safe place, that in the chaos and in the contradictions of this world, that you would have deep confidence and trust that Jesus is your rock and your salvation, that in the midst of either the attack or the applause of man, you would know that you are held in both the power and steadfast love of our righteous Saviour. In Psalm 46 verse 10, the psalmist says, Surrender your anxiety. Be silent and stop your striving, and you will see that I am God. I am the God above all nations, and I will be exalted throughout the earth. 
be silent and stop your striving and you will see that I am God. Let's end um, with that thought that we started on. The Psalms are a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.